Good evening and welcome everybody. Welcome back to session number 129 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, good to be with you guys. This is session, I think, number 55 on the Council of Elrond. And tonight is a big night because we are going to get to the climax of the entire council, the turning point what everything has been building towards. It's true that Elrond has been playing the long game with the council, but one can hardly blame someone as many thousand years old as he is for that. Um, but he has been building up to this point, and he is finally going to unveil his actual <laughs> advice. Tarlonio, unfortunately for Bilbo, lunch is not, in fact, the climax of the council. But uh, we are actually going to get Elrond the wisest lore master of Middle-earth giving his opinion tonight uh, for the first time. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> Rhythm of the Night, who is with us here for the first time, has been catching up and he's on session 135 and he can't believe we're still on the council. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we've been on the Council of Elrond since December 15th, 2019. It has seen all of us all the way through the pandemic and everything else. But yeah, here we are. Um, nope, nope, we're on 55 and going strong. I think we'll, um, I think we'll get, uh, I don't even know. I'm not going to try and guess. I'm not going to try and guess how many more we still have. Probably 10-ish. I don't know. Um, but uh, I said by midsummer, right? By midsummer, we should be, uh, we should get to Christmas in the text by midsummer, uh, you know, in the real world. So something like that. Um, anyway, okay. So that's where we are. Uh, one real quick announcement just to remind folks. Uh, don't forget to register for MythMoot and also be, uh, uh, look out for the call for papers. There's, you can go to the page, uh, signumuniversity.org slash MythMoot, uh, and you can find the call for papers there. Uh, really look forward to proposals for presentations. Uh, I always really enjoy not only sort of like, you know, traditional academic paper uh, deliveries, but, um, you know, more sort of like unusual and un unorthodox suggestions. Uh, lots of... Um, uh, lots of lots of fun there. Yeah, I see that Lisa on uh, Facebook is also saying the same thing. She she took several months off because she was having a baby and returns from maternity leave to find us still on the council. So there we are. There we are. Um, uh, but anyway, yes, I do hope folks will be able to join us for uh, MythMoot. And of course, as you know, um, we've been saying the end of March uh, is when we're hoping to uh, make our final decision about whether or not we're going to try to do a hybrid experience with MythMoot this year, whether we're going to try to have an in-person component, as well as we're going to do the digital stuff one way or the other. Um, so totally sign up. We have our two digital options open. Um, MootCast, which is sort of the more asynchronous one. It is synchronous as well. You can watch live, but it's it's designed especially for people who might miss stuff, might not be able to see things, and want to be able to access uh, the recordings of not just the ones you get to see in real time, but all of them. So it's really valuable that way. Um, but at the same time, uh, you could also do Moot Hub, which is the one for people who really want to really want the immersive conference experience from home, basically as as closely as we can make it. Um, so that's not only presentation by presentation, but, you know, the sort of fun uh, social contact in and around and through all the sessions as well. So um, so that both of those, Mootcast uh, and Moot Hub, are both open. Um, if we do 
in, announce later if we do decide to make the decision to have an in-person component down at the venue we've been using down in Leesburg, Virginia. If we do that, then we'll have an upgrade option. You know, so if you've signed up for Moot Hub, then you can upgrade uh, to uh, in-person. But uh, as I say, we haven't decided that yet. We will we will see what happens with that. We're waiting till the end of March to kind of give things as much of a chance to play out as we can while still then having three months warning basically for people to arrange travel if we did go that direction. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, but, um, all right. Anyway, so that's my announcement. Remember MythMoot. Uh, it is always fun. I get email notifications when people sign up and register for things, which I've always loved. I've gotten those ever since uh, we first started Signum, and I always love those. I always uh, love seeing people's names coming across and uh, uh, seeing who is uh, who is going to get to come this year. I always look forward to connecting with folks at MythMoot, one of my favorite times of the year. Um, but anyway, all right. Um, <laughs> I see Simpson on... Uh, 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 YouTube is saying, I can't, I can't wait for when we get to Torek Ungol. I know, right? Me too. I'm really excited about that. Um, but, uh, it's okay. As long as, long as, as long as we remain in reasonably good health, we should still get there someday. Um, so there we go. Um, yeah, Captain, I, I, Mo, I, I agree. I, I think we will see some children who will grow up to adults <laughs> during the course of this discussion. Uh, you know, some, I, I forget. Oh, I'm blanking now. Somebody, um, who was our first Exploring the Lord of the Rings baby? One of our regular attendees had a baby. Um, we shared the picture, and that was way back way back in the early chapters. And we were joking about how old that child was going to be <laughs> by the time we got to the end, like whether we were going to finish before that child graduated from high school or something like that. <laughs> but um, anyway, so uh, uh, yeah, it's, it is, uh, it is definitely a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> exactly. And then uh, when the, when the, when the children in the wombs of women grow old, we will finish our discussion. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, um, yep. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so let's get back to it here. We're going to miss the climax of the council after all. Now, don't be alarmed. You'll be like, Hey, we did this slide last time. In fact, didn't we do this slide? No, we didn't do it for two, two, two weeks in a row. It just seems like it. Uh, but anyway, I only want to just read the end because we need it for the transition right into the slide that we're going to start with. You will remember that Galdor, whom we spent a lot of time last week talking about, says, Only the waning might of Gondor stands now between him and a marching power along the coast into the north, and if he comes, assailing the White Towers and the Havens, hereafter the elves may have no escape from the lengthening shadows of Middle-earth. And of course, even if you haven't read the text many times already, if you're paying attention you know what's coming next, right? I mean, he totally asked for it right there, right? Galdor is about to get exactly what he deserves, right? And that is, of course, an interruption from Boromir. Long yet will that march be delayed, said Boromir. Gondor wanes, you say, but Gondor stands, and even the end of its strength is still very strong. And yet its vigilance can no longer keep back the Nine, said Galdor, and other roads he may find that Gondor does not guard. Then, said Aristor, there are but two courses, as Glorfindel already has declared, to hide the ring forever or to unmake it, but both are beyond our power. Who will read this riddle for us? 
None here can do so, said Elrond gravely. At least none can foretell what will come to pass if we take this road or that. But it seems to me now clear which is the road that we must take. It's a pretty strong statement for Elrond, don't you think? The westward road seems easiest. Therefore it must be shunned. It will be watched. Too often the elves have fled that way. Now at this last we must take a hard road, a road unforeseen. There lies our hope, if hope it be, to walk into peril, to Mordor. We must send the ring to the fire. Okay. All right. Um, uh, I want, of course, we're not going to start with Elrond's thing here. We've got to start with uh, Boromir, Galdor, and Aristor here. Um, so, yeah. All right. Um, yeah, Matt, the, the, uh, that last sentence is a doozy, right? We must send the ring to the fire with the capital letters, right? The capital R ring to the capital F fire. Um, Boromir. Now, we've... I've tried to do some sort of Boromir apology. I'm using that word in the old sense, right? Some defense of Boromir uh, as we've gone through. We've kind of talked about this before, ways in which Boromir... um, you know, when we, it's, it's easy to kind of do a superficial reading of Boromir as, you know, this hothead who's, uh, um, you know, even, you know, one could even depict him if one chose. Like, what one could try to make him sound like, a, uh, you know, like really rash and thoughtless and stuff like that. But despite the fact that he interrupts <laughs> fairly regularly, you know, I think he's... Uh, I think he's definitely our most frequent interrupter, right? I mean, he and Frodo were uh, neck and neck for a while, but I think he's pulled ahead here again with the with the uh, uh, with the um, uh, the interruptions. Um, but um, but anyway, here again now, when he responds, long yet will that march be delayed? Gondor wanes, you say, but Gondor stands. I think. Um, that this is, um, I think this is, so on the one hand, is he dis- defending Gondor? Is he, uh, is he trying to set the record straight when he feels that Gondor has been dissed by Galdor? Yeah, sure. Gondor wanes, you say, but Gondor stands, right? But I don't think that that's the only or the inescapable the, you know, like an inescapable way of reading that. Like, I don't think that this has to sound petulant or something like that, right? Um, he was speaking fairly highly before, right, of, you know, Gondor, the bulwark of the West and that kind of thing. Um, you know, he had a fairly high opinion of himself and Gondor with it, Um or rather, of Gondor and himself with it, perhaps would be a fairer way to say. Um, and we've shown before how Boromir has tended to be provincial, right? And, you know, have a very Gondor-centric perspective and to not really understand, um, you know, what's going on around and, and sort of the significance, of, you know, how it fits into the big picture and what's going on in, you know, the rest of the continent. Um, and those things are all true. I, you know, I'm not kind of taking any of those things back here, of course. But um, but I still think that we could read this, um, despite the fact that he's leaping to the defense of Gondor. I think this is not just him being, pr- being proud. I, don't, I think this is not only wounded pride speaking. 
And Nancy, I agree with you. Certainly no worse than Galdor's elf-centric view. Absolutely. Galdor um, certainly is, a, it does seem to be something like at least as uh, provincial in his own way um, as Boromir is. Um, but, um, but yeah, Gilgamesh, that's exactly it. Um, is he speaking for hope, for the idea that all is not lost? Yes, yes. Um, Gondor wanes, you say, but Gondor stands, right? Notice he's not denying it, the waning, exactly, right? Um, I mean, one way to paraphrase his statement here is, despite the fact that Gondor may be waning, yet we stand and we will stand. And even the end of its strength is still very strong. Um, and uh, note even that first statement, long yet will that march be delayed, is a really interesting statement, right? He doesn't just disagree with him, right? Remember, Galdor has is, you know, just said, only the waning might of Gondor stands now between him and a march in power along the coast into the north, right? Which, you know, you could take that as sort of implying, you know, only a wet paper towel stands between him and a march in power into the north, right? Um, and... And and again, hear sort of Boromir's response uh, in that light, like, you know, take that back. Um, Galdor is concerned about what's going to happen to the Havens, right? And therefore to the fate of all the rest of the elves in Middle-earth if Sauron marches in power to the north with, a, with the Grey Havens as his target, right, in order to take out the Havens. Um, Boromir's response, long yet will that march be delayed, he doesn't say, oh, no, he won't, right? He doesn't say, you know, yeah, Sauron wishes he could make a march in power into the north, right? But he can't, right? Because he's got Gondor to reckon with. That's, that's, not, um, that's not what he's saying, right? Long yet will that march be delayed. He may, but... Don't worry, Galdor. It's going to take a long time. It's not going to happen any time real soon, Galdor. You know why? Because we're going to resist him. And we're going to resist him until the end. He won't be able to make the march into the north until he's killed us all. And that's going to take some doing, right? Even the end of its strength. He doesn't Notice he doesn't deny that. Gondor is coming to the end of its strength. That's a, something like a concession. Right. At first, it sounds like he's denying it. Gondor wanes, you say. Right. Says you. Right. Don't you tell me about the waning of Gondor is kind of what that sounds like at first. But I don't think that actually is what he means. Gondor wanes, you say. Fine. But Gondor stands. And even the end of its strength, you know, because it's waning, even the end of its strength is still very strong. Have we waned? Yeah. Are we as strong as we used to be? No. Even his own pride in Gondor won't let him, you know, claim that, right? Um, but what he does insist on, what he does insist on is we stand, we are standing, and we will stand in his way. And at the very least, we're going to delay his march in power into the north, because he's got to come through us first. And that at least is going to be non-trivial. It's going to take him some time to mop us up before he comes up. And in the context, saying this to Galdor, right, who's afraid of Sauron marching into the north, 
You know, it's like, don't worry. He's going to have to kill us all first before he does that. So, you know, you've got a little bit of time to do whatever you need to do to get ready for that, right? Um, while he's busy killing us, there's some actual... Um, there's some actual... Uh, um, self-sacrifice involved here, right? I mean, he's pointing out, and he's rightly pointing out, Gondor is prepared to sacrifice itself. Our armies, our people, are prepared to sacrifice ourselves to protect you. The bulwark of the West thing is not just a boast, right? I mean, yes, he underestimates, you know, the powers that are elsewhere in Middle-earth. Yes, he... um, uh, you know, he doesn't understand really the big picture outside, you know, beyond Gondor. Yes, he does have a sort of inflated idea about um, the significance of, um, uh, you know, of, of, of Gondor in the big picture, really, as far as Sauron's plans and everything are concerned. Um, yeah, I think that those things are true. I think those things are fair. But he's not wrong about this, right? Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Kurtzimus, couldn't Gondor be bypassed? Sure, technically, yeah. I mean, he could just go around them. They don't guard all passes. Um, I mean, even if they j- he just ignored Gondor and took all of his armies north and went through Rohan instead, he presumably could do that more easily than he could uh, conquer Gondor. Um, but again, he's right uh, it, it, he is, he's not wholly wrong, Boromir, about the importance of Gondor and defeating Gondor to Sauron, right? Sauron does actually want to smash Gondor before he goes into the north. Um, and uh, you are absolutely right. Um, uh, let's see. Who... I just missed something here. Um... I miss a lot of things, of course. Um, somebody was just saying, was it? Someone just saying the armies need roads, right? Um, armies need roads, and uh, so you know, Gondor therefore gives them the best opportunity to travel through. I mean, like they're going to want to take the Greenway. If he is going to march into the north, the Greenway is his route, uh, right? Because uh, it's it's a road. Yeah, Matt, I thought that was you. Um, um, yeah, exactly. No, I mean, again, there's, it's, there's a lot of reasons why it would be practical to do it. But, but again, I, he's not wrong. We know Sauron is going to be attacking Gondor. It was always his plan to attack Gondor. Um, but, um, uh, but yes, yes. Um, so, anyway. Boromir's statement here, I think, is perfectly defensible. Especially in the context, I mean... Remember last time, see, I'm doubly glad I kept this passage here. Last time when I was talking about my own traditional misunderstanding of this passage, how I've misunderstood this passage for years. If the return to, Yar- to Yarwain be thought too dangerous, then flight to the sea is now fraught with bravest peril, which always made me wonder if Galdor had the faintest idea where Mordor is and how quickly uh, and, uh, Sauron could get there. And then we were discussing, C. Schwab was saying last time, uh, you know, some really good arguments there. Um, Anyway, so I love the resolutions that we came to last time about this, and it helps me to understand this. And yet, despite the fact 
that the emphasis is still on spies, on Sauron learning the direction they have taken the ring and therefore knowing where to focus his attacks, right? Despite that, um, Galdor is nevertheless concerned about how soon um, the enemy is likely to be marching up into the north, is going to be invading Eriador again. Um, so, yeah, and and uh, uh, Diksha Vu is right here. Sauron would need to secure an Anduin crossing for his army. Um, that's not going to be trivial everywhere. Um, yeah, good. GDC was just saying the same thing. There are only so places an army can cross the Anduin. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, um, yeah, yeah. Matt, I agree. Matt says, I get the idea that Galdor is rather ignobly concerned for his own skin, but Boromir yearns to die in a good cause. Well, the one thing I'd say for Galdor here is that I think it's not primarily his own skin that Galdor is thinking about, but his mission, his purpose, right? I mean, he's he's got a job, right? I mean, Galdor has one job. He's one of the elves of the Grey Havens. They do what they do, right? They're, they are focused on their job, and their job is to keep the Havens open. Right, to keep the havens open so that the elves can escape Middle-earth. That's what they do. And so that's what he's focused on. And so, yes, uh, from the Galdorian perspective, um, the you know, Sauron coming to the havens and destroying the havens would be the last disaster, right? In the end and the ultimate failure of, the, of, of their mission, which is not a selfish one. It's, a, you know, he is doing so, you know, if, uh, if Boromir's, desire and intention, declaration, right, that Gondor will stand uh, even if it's just going to be a delaying action against the marches of the enemy. Um, uh, Galdor's own service is also a selfless one in its way. It, you know, it's definitely sort of for others. Um, but, um, but nevertheless, I do think that uh, he's being a little bit ungenerous to Gondor and Boromir would seem to agree with that. Um, uh, yeah. That's one thing I don't know about, JJ. Um, and that, I think, is an interesting point. Um, Tony was just implying the same the same kind of thing there, that um, is there an element of chastisement, nevertheless, that is, Hey, uh, Mr. Elf, so focused on like, oh, no, but like, what happens if we can't run away? Right. Uh, you know, like some of us are over here fighting to the death. OK, but don't worry, Mr. Runaway Elf. We're going to fight to the death long enough and occupy the enemy long enough by our, you know, fighting to the death in order to enable you guys to run away successfully. Right. So go ahead. You do your thing, right? Do your running away. Um, and um, I, I hear that, JJ. Uh, so do I think that he is, that there's any kind of element of castigation there? I, I, I don't see it. I mean, could that argument be made? Yes, but I don't hear Boromir making it. Um, he doesn't say anything. He's speaking of Gondor. Long yet will that march be delayed. Gondor wanes, but Gondor stands, and even the end of its strength is still very strong. I mean, if, if there's an implied criticism there, it's extremely indirect, right? Extremely indirect, um, simply in the sense of, like, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do, right? You know, 
then if um, you're going to avail yourself of the opportunity to keep running away, you do you, man. Right. Um, uh, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, oh yeah, sorry. One other thing I want to say about that first sentence. Um, my favorite sentence, uh, my, fir- my favorite word in that sentence rather is will. Long yet will that march be delayed. Um, the sentence as a whole does not speak confidently of their chances in the war with Sauron, right? The sentence as a whole acknowledges that the, mar- the march is going to happen, right? I mean, it's, they're not going to succeed in resisting Sauron in the end. Um, all they are hoping for is a long delay of that march. But he's confident Long yet will that march be... Not may. It's not long yet may that march be delayed. Like, hey, you know, might be okay. You might have more time than you think. Um, It's confidence. Long yet will that march be delayed. Um, The combination of confidence in their strength and what they can accomplish in a completely hopeless cause is... um, kind of breathtaking in that sentence. And I agree, uh, several of you guys, and I've been kind of missing this, um, uh, several of you guys have been talking about this sort of northern spirit, uh, right? The, the kind of the, the, the element of northern courage here, um, defiance in the face of impossible odds, uh, willingness uh, to die and determination to die well. Um, yes, I definitely, I definitely hear that. And I agree, Matt, it is a chance for Boromir, son of Denethor, to show his quality. Um, yeah, and Arden Crayon, you're right. Boromir is literally saying, over my dead body, over my dead body and the bodies of all of my people. Yes, exactly. Now, um, Galdor, Galdor's response, <laughs> over my dead country, <laughs> said Strasnake. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Uh, And yet its vigilance can no longer keep back the Nine, said Galdor, and other roads he may find that Gondor does not guard. Um, I don't know about you, this is where I lose all sympathy for Galdor. Um, Like, before, I was willing to go with him. I really was. Here, he kind of sounds like a jerk. I, I, I gotta say, he kind of sounds like a jerk. Um, first of all, and other roads he may find that Gondor does not guard. Uh, yeah, yeah. And Matt, you're right. He's not wrong, right? He's not wrong. Um, neither of his statements are incorrect, right? Um, but the second one, does Galdor even know what he's talking about? Like, seriously, what roads Galdor, Right. Tell me the strategy that you're afraid that Sauron is going to deploy, right? I'm not convinced Galdor knows any of those roads. Um, but, um, but the first one. And yet its vigilance can no longer keep back the nine? Seriously? That's their job? That's their job. Right, like prevent 
the nine ring wraiths from emerging all by themselves? Like, does this constitute a failure? Like, Gondor in its, you know, in prior to its waning, would not. I, I, I don't. I don't understand the point of his statement there. So I, I guess okay. I guess I'm asking for help again. Here's the help I'm asking for here. Convince me that Galdor isn't just being a jerk, because it sounds to me like he's being a jerk there. I mean, again, he's not wrong, but um, but he's. <laughs> He sounds like a jerk. Um, and yet its vigilance can no longer keep back the nine. What does he mean? What is this, what, what is this a counter-argument to? Is he countering, like, Boromir's just said Gondor wanes, but Gondor stands? And yet its vigilance can no longer keep back? So yeah, you might be standing, but what good is it doing when the ringwraiths are getting through, right? Fat lot of good you did when the, when the ringwraiths, you know, just like, plowed right through and came into the north. What the heck were they supposed to do? Like, I don't... I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Christmas says, what good did you do, Galdor? Yeah, I know, right? Um, It's true that not all attacks are armies... But in saying that, he is changing the topic. He just said he was just worried about a march in force up to the coast. And Boromir's like, yeah, we got that. Don't worry. We're going to give our lives to slow down that march, to give you guys time to escape. And then Galdor's like, but, but, you didn't stop the ring raids. Wait, wait, I thought we were talking about armies marching up from the south, Galdor. Right? Come on now. Right? Like, that's, that's, right? Jerk. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying. So let me, let me, let me, let me try to rethink this. Because I don't want to think. Um, yeah, uh, Erua Hill, that's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, moving the posts is a great tactic for people who don't like to admit they're wrong. That's what it sounds like, right? First, he was worried about armies moving north, and when Boromir says, yeah, don't worry, Gondor's got the armies, at least for a while, then he's like, but but it didn't stop the ringwraiths. Um, um, yeah, and Flammerfer says the Havens have successfully uh, resisted the ringwraiths before. Um, yes. Okay. So, um, the primary defense that I see you guys trying to gather here is that Galdor, um, Galdor's having a panic attack here. That this is Galdor not really speaking sensibly. Um, Galdor is being overcome with his own fears and concerns. We had talked last time about, you know, his previous speech being a kind of elvish panic attack. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Um, JJ, that's a really good point. Let's think about this. JJ says, um, I don't think he's saying it's Gondor's job, like it's Gondor's job to keep back the nine. He's not saying 
The nine got through and that proves you guys are actually a failure, turns out, right? Um, that would be the jerk thing to say because totally unfair. Um, and that's why it's a jerk thing to say. It's a moving the goalposts thing. It's, uh, it's uh, like what, who put them in charge of, like who even said that was even theoretically possible, right? Like it's not their business. Um, but anyway, so JJ was saying, I don't think he's saying it's Gondor's job but rather claiming we've gone past where playing defense is a winning strategy. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Um, we've gone past where playing defense is a winning strategy. Yes. So, JJ, if we take that line if we if we take that line of thought as an implicit context for Galdor's statement here not that he is so he's not rebutting them right i mean he could like it's so hang on a second so here here's one way to salvage galdor a little bit let's imagine the worst things he could say right he's not saying um but gondor stands yeah well not long enough right i mean whatever Right. Um, you know, if, if basically remember. So he said, like, so, you know, except for Gondor. So and he's going to come through like them like a wet paper towel. And then Boromir's like even the end of its strength is still very strong. If he had said whatever, dude, right, that says you. Right. I repeat again, wet paper towel. Right. I stand by my previous implication. That would be the real jerk thing to say. Right. Um Sacrifice your lives if you want, but it's not going to do the rest of us any good. Um, so, okay, he's not saying that. We know he's not saying that. So if, J.J., as you're suggesting, instead what he's doing is saying, look, it's not about the strength of Gondor. Who cares how strong Gondor is, right? Um, it's not time to play defense. But what, is the, what do the nine have to do with that? Its vigilance can no longer keep back the nine. Um, let's see. Um, hmm. Hmm. Um, yes, the non the nine almost got the ring. If we go back to Galdor's previous statement again, if Galdor's initial concern, as we were discussing last time, if Galdor's true concern here, if the march in power along the coast into the north is only the secondary concern of his, or sort of the down-the-road concern, and the immediate concern, the gravest peril that he is saying that flight to the sea is fraught with, is the spies and agents of the enemy... The ringwraiths are a representative of that, right? Um, the um, the ringwraiths are the best, most immediate, and also strongest example of the reach of Sauron's hand, right? I'm thinking here of Karathras, right, and about how long Sauron's arm has grown. Um, his his arm has grown long. Right. Look how long it's grown. Right. So. So, JJ, I can imagine in this context, Galdor wanting to say. Oh, oh, OK, Boromir, fine. 
so you delay them for a little bit. But how does that help us right now? Right? Um, now, again, to that, my response Gal to Galdor would be, you're the one who brought it up, the march in power along the coast into the north. Right? Um, so, JJ, I would say he's still moving the goalposts, even if he is saying it's not, it's not the time to play defense. Then I would also say it's also not the time to be worrying about the march in power into the north, and you're the one who brought it up. Um, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course, Drowsnake, you're right. Uh, Drowsnake points out that, um, from Galdor's perspective, Gondor has probably delayed Sauron for no more than a hot minute. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, true, true. Uh, long may that march be delayed is probably, they, long is going to have to get an asterisk, right? A, a big fat elvish asterisk next to it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And yes, Eruahil, you're right. The roads that Gondor doesn't guard comes after the Nazgul comet. Yeah, we're still just focusing on that first one. And other roads he may find that Gondor does not guard does make it sound like he's still focused on the armies. And if he's still focused on the armies, I'm going straight back to jerk on that first sentence. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, Nancy, it takes elves 15 years to pack a suitcase. So true, Nancy, so true. Um, <laughs> Nancy, I was just... So I, I'm in my rereading cycle. I'm rereading the Silmarillion right now. So earlier tonight, I was just reading um, the uh, uh, the flight of the Noldor, and uh, I just couldn't help but laugh because I was remembering when we were reading the Annals of Amon uh, in the history of Middle Earth uh, and discussing those, and um, I got to the passage in the Silmarillion where it talks about how much of a rush Feanor's in after he delivers the speech and the Noldor agreed to leave, right? And he's like, we gotta, we can't, we can't let any time pass. We've gotta, we gotta keep the foot on the gas, right? We gotta, if, if, if we give them even a minute to cool down, we can't let them cool down, right? We've gotta, we've gotta go while everybody's still hot. Uh, and so like they went with very little preparation and in a big rush and everything like that. And then you go back to the annals of Amon and it was like 30 years, <laughs> In fact, <laughs> that like between Fanor's speech and the kinslaying was like multiple, I think more than a decade, at least five years in the annals of Mon past between the two. And I'm like, see, yeah, keep the foot on the gas. And I'm like, but that's exactly as the point. Like, as, as, as you're saying, Nancy, it takes elves 15 years to pack a suitcase. So they didn't have quite enough time. They only had, like, 10 years to pack their suitcases. So they were, like, super unprepared. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, yes. Kurtzman says, the flight of the Noldor scored by Wagner. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyhow, okay. Um yeah, okay. Let's see. Um All right, Matt says, the march to the sea is all about a march to claim the One Ring by force. Sauron can do that at the head of an orcish horde or with an elite strike force like the Nine. Galdor's point could be that even Gondor's defense is porous and cannot be guaranteed to hold back Sauron's efforts. Yes, that's true. 
That's true. So, um, okay, that's that's only like a two or a three on the jerk scale instead of a six or seven. So I'll take that as a amelioration anyway of the of the of the issue, because it's you know. Basically, if he's saying, hey, you know, thanks for your willingness to die in the cause and, and try to delay the march of his armies, but even delaying his armies is, might not do us any good. If the ringwraiths came through, and yet yeah, perhaps Sauron came through or something like that, um, you know, maybe Sauron himself could punch through. And then, you know, Sauron at the, f- you know, at the forefront of the ringwraiths could be coming in power to the north, right? Even if his army, even if he doesn't bring these armies with him, right? Okay, yeah, it's true. So I, I, I would say that um, if what he's saying could be paraphrased as something like, yeah, but even the best that you can do isn't guaranteed to really stop him, right? Um, even if you did stop his armies, it might not stop him. okay. That's like slightly less jerky. It's still the I, I I still have a hard time getting over how he's brushing off Boromir's statement about the sacrifice of Gondor, right? Um, uh, Boromir making this balanced and strong and courageous statement. Boromir speaking very well as he always does, um, and then Galdor just kind of, you know, his end yet feels like a brush off to me, right? He doesn't really address anything that Boromir says or acknowledge what Boromir just said, even though, um, uh, yeah. Heir of Numenor, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Um, no longer, yet its vigilance can no longer keep back the nine. Yeah, we're overlooking that phrase. He does make it sound... Man. And here I was... Matt had made some progress in making me think Galdor slightly less of a jerk, and now you push me straight back to it, because that sounds like he's just... Not just brushing off, but refuting what Boromir had said. Right? Whatever, Boromir. The end of your strength is still very strong. Well, not strong enough to keep back the nine, apparently. So, what good is it? Right? If its vigilance can no longer keep back... Now, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume he's using the word vigilance unsarcastically. Right? It could be worse. Right? It would be worse if he were using it, and yet its vigilance can no longer keep back the nine. I'm not... I don't hear him that way. I'm not going to go so far as that. Um, but, um, but no longer does make it sound like he's saying, you can say as much as you like that the end of its strength is still very strong, but it isn't strong enough, right? Like it's already failed. It's already failed. It can no longer keep back the nine. And other roads he may find that Gondor does not guard. In other words, your brave statements about self it's useless. It's useless. What's the point of Gondor? Gondor can't keep back the ring wraiths. And anyway, he could go around them. So who cares? 
Who cares? Gondor is irrelevant to this discussion. Which brings me right back to Jerk, right? I mean, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Kurtzman is playing dirty. So Galdor is kind of a jerk to Boromir here, but at least he doesn't try to kill the ring bearer. Ouch. That stings, Kurtzimus. Yikes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting. So Rachel has a great question. Rachel Port on uh, uh, YouTube says... Um, could Galdor's non-response to Boromir's talk of Gondor's heroism have to do with elves not understanding the factor of death? That's a really good question. I don't think so, because, um, I don't think so because they understand that bit, right? Uh, that what they don't understand is dying of old age, <clears throat> and they don't understand what happens to humans after they die. Dying in battle, elves get, uh, the elves of Middle-earth have had lots of experience, uh, some of them with personal experience, right? Gorfindel is himself a veteran of dying in battle. Um, he's the only one sitting at the table who can sit around and explain what dying in battle is like from the other side. So, um, uh, but, but anyway, yeah, no, they, they, they're familiar with that. Um, uh, they're familiar with that, but, uh, I do wonder, I do wonder to what extent there is a cultural gap there that helps to influence that. It's not, I think, the sort of the mortality thing exactly, but... I don't know. Um... I don't want to. I don't want to overdo it in my dissing of Galdor here. Um, that is, I don't want to. What? Let me explain what I'm resisting. What I'm resisting. Um, what I'm resisting is saying that Galdor doesn't care because they're just humans, right? That he devalue. He's devaluing human life, broadly speaking. Um, that seems unfair. That seems to go beyond any warrant I think we have uh, from the text in viewing Galdor. Um, uh, okay. All right. Hey, Frumius Bujum, I like this. Frumius Bujum has a, uh, um, a good suggestion. Less of a jerk interpretation, he says. You acknowledge you will ultimately fail... So why don't we find an alternative that doesn't end up with all of you dead? Um, I like that. Let's run with this. Let's run with this. Um, because again, Boromir's statement, as lovely as it is, as moving as it is, as powerful as it is in many ways, ultimately, it's not solving anybody's problems. Right? Maybe it'll give him a little bit more time to run away. But I get the end. Of, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not solving anything. Right? Um, it's not solving anything. Um, he... 
where, where does this get us? A noble defense in which we all die, first you and then us, right? And then where are we? How does that solve our problems? How does that solve the big picture problem? Remember, Gandalf has already given his speech about we should take thought to make a final end to this, right? We've been given the... Remember, Gandalf's angle was... Providence has laid before us the opportunity. Here we are, and here is the ring. Providence has laid before us this opportunity to deal with this situation. We have this unaccountable, unpredictable, unanticipatable opportunity to handle the Sauron problem. Um, what are we going to do with it? And if the answer is only, we're going to put up a noble defense, a noble but hopeless defense in which we will all be killed one by one, nobly, bravely, um, with dignity, and then Sauron takes the ring, right? Um, after we're all dead, but only if we're all dead, you know. Um, that's not an answer. That's not that doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> I, love, I love GDC's par, uh, paraphrase. I feel like we can workshop that plan a bit. <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 Exactly, Matt. That Boromir is taking the Northern Courage too far and ultimately, by doing so, sort of distracting from the real problem. Right? Um Yes, yes. Um, and Boromir does sound a bit Rohiric here, JJ, you're right. And I think, by the way, his brother is well aware of that, right? He is gonna, Faramir, later on, will pretty much up and say that Boromir shared the uh, values of the Rohirrim and other, that Boromir was an example of Gondor on the wane. Um, waning Gondor uh, which stands, and even the end of its strength is still very strong, and yet it has waned, right? That's Boromir to a T. Faramir is going to later imply. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes. For Dauntless, I agree. In fairness, in this plan, they would not be bothered by the victory of Sauron being dead. Exactly. Um, and But that's precisely... Um, uh, and of course, I, 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 I see what you're doing there, uh, Fourth Dauntless, and uh, the, uh, the one whom you are quoting, uh, well, paraphrasing and quoting there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's exactly the Denethorian direction, right? Um, but of course, that is exactly the kind of thinking that Gandalf has already been explicitly rejecting and saying that it is important for them to reject. Um, it's not theirs to give thought to a season only, but that they should make a final end of this. Um, and there, you know, we were talking about the difference between the way elves look at things and the way that humans look at things. This is one way in which the elvish way of looking at things is a little better suited to the situation, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Um, okay. So let's bring in Aristor's response. Then, said Aristor, there are but two courses, as Gorfindel has declared, to hide the ring forever or to unmake it. But both are beyond our power. Who will read this riddle for us? Um, this paragraph really raises Aristor, in my opinion. Um, Aristor, there's a lot going on here, right? Aristor diffuses a situation. Boromir, he does not give Boromir a chance to respond, right? Um, because there are several ways in which Boromir could respond that would make this unravel a little bit further. Um, this is a tense moment, and I don't think anyone's totally talked me out of 100%. My, my jerk meter has not gone down to zero on Galdor here, right? I would say at the very least, bare minimum, Galdor is being insensitive here, right? Um, this final reading that we've been looking at here, this, um, you know, okay, awesome, you're going to sacrifice yourselves, that's adorable, but it doesn't help. Ultimately, we need to think bigger picture than this. Um, you know, I, I, that's better. It's, it is better. It is better. But um, I still, I think, not utterly jerk-free <laughs> in its response uh, to Boromir. Aristor cuts it off, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, GDC says Galdor's lucky Gondor doesn't have a culture of challenging people to duels. Um, yes, yes. Um, Aristor brings it back to the main point because certainly, um, right, exactly, exa exactly, Matt from Wisconsin, um, no one's chucked a, a, a drinking vessel into anybody's face and broken their mouths. So things are still going reasonably well. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, so um, <laughs> Aristor breaks in, cuts through. If there's tension here, which I kind of think there is. Um, I got to imagine, I'm trying to imagine Boromir's body language during Galdor's response, right? He's got to be bristling at least a little bit here, right? At least a little bit here. Is he actually like inhaling to fire off a response? I don't know. We've seen that Boromir is a good diplomat. He's a good speaker and he um, has acquitted himself really well, right? Um but Aristor doesn't let it happen, right? He breaks in and he breaks in not and, and totally shuts down this whole line of discussion, right? Let's stop talking about Gondor and what Gondor will or will not do or can or cannot do as that's irrelevant. Let's get back to the main question, shall we? There are but two courses, as Gorfindel has already declared. I love even how he... Um, uh, I, I love even how he appeals to Gorfindel here, right? Because, um, I mean, I, maybe it's just me, and I've always been a huge Gorfindel fan, but I've got to think that everybody around this table has abundant respect for Gorfindel. Like, even Boromir has got to be impressed. Like, Gorfindel's just that kind of guy, right? I mean, you can't be sitting in the room with Gorfindel and not realize that this is a dude that, you know... 
before whose face the Nazgul withdraw, right? I mean, that's, um, that's kind of the way it is, right? So he not only brings it back to the main topic, um, but he, uh, he name drops Gorfindel. Right? Let's get back to what Gorfindel was saying, right? Um, as Gorfindel has already declared, there are but two courses, to hide the ring or to unmake it. Remember, we have a decision to make. Here we are and here's the ring, as Gandalf says. What are we going to do with it? Hide the ring forever or to unmake it, but both are beyond our power. Who will read this riddle for us? And there at the end, you've just got to... You've just got to give him props, right? I mean... This guy. If I'm Elrond, I'm giving him a raise after this. I don't know what he gets paid... He doesn't really get paid. I know that's a joke, but whenever he gets paid, I'm, I'm doubling it, right? I mean, that was beautiful. Like, nobody could set the volleyball better than that, right? I mean, he's, he knows. I, he, he's got to know. I don't know if he knows what Elrond's answer is going to be. I don't know if he, um, if he was in the know. Like, was he part of the executive committee meeting in advance with Gandalf and, and Elrond, um, you know, and them, like, trying to figure out what they wanted to do in this meeting or not? Um, I, I don't, um, I don't know, right? And if any of that is true. Um, I suspect it's not. I suspect he doesn't already know. I don't think that he's just a plant here. I think that he just... He's been around Elrond for a really long time. And I think that he, know, he can see that Elrond uh, is going to read the riddle for them, right? That Elrond has, uh, has opinions on this subject. And I think that he's definitely um, setting this up. Tony, I absolutely read it the same way. Um, I feel like he finished and immediately looked at Elrond. Yeah, me too. Who, who will read this riddle for us? <laughs> Elrond, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, who will read this riddle for us? Also, by the way, this puts um, this puts both Galdor and Boromir in their place. Notice how hard he makes Sorry, it. Sorry, I'm happy. What is wrong with you, Siri? <laughs> my watch keeps breaking in at the most unaccountable moments um, I can't even find any pattern in what I say prior to series interruption but anyway um, okay so again notice how, how, how it, neither one of them can respond to this right he has not only um, uh, he has not only derailed their argument, or re-railed the conversation, I suppose, right? Um, <laughs> Trostnik says, Siri, will you read this riddle for us? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to know what Siri is going to say uh, if I ask her that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, but again, neither Boromir nor Galdor can respond. Right. Galdor has just been saying, I mean, um, one way to do a big old big picture paraphrase of what Galdor has been saying of Galdor's whole contribution. Um, Galdor's whole contributions have essentially boiled down to something like 
But what will we do? Right? He doesn't know. Like panic attack, as we were saying. He is not making suggestions. He is worrying about consequences, right? He is seeing obstacles. He's not suggesting a plan at all, right? So if Aristor says, who will read this riddle for us? It's not going to be Galdor. Galdor has already said he doesn't know how to read the riddle. He, I think, is pretty sure that Boromir is not going to read the riddle because Boromir's plan is apparently, I know what to do, and that is nobly give my life in battle opposing Sauron. Great plan, Boromir. That's, that's, that's no really, that's good. Um, but again, doesn't solve the problem. Um, and um, <laughs> neither one of them are going to be able to say this, right? So he shuts them up just beautifully, just beautifully, right? Um, uh, and then sets up Elrond. Right. For the, uh, you know, for the, the spike over the net there. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. GDC imagines Boromir's response is I literally walked all the way here just so that you could help me decipher a riddle. Right. Like this. That's the whole point of coming here is uh, so that somebody could read this riddle for us. Right. I literally came with riddling words to be interpreted by you guys. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> Nancy says, of course, Gandalf gave Elrond a wonderful setup before and it all came to squirrels. Yes, yes, it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, it's, it's true that, uh, uh, you know, it kind of looked like Elrond fumbled the exchange before, but I get it. I, I understand the defenses several of you were making of Elrond's squirrel speech, uh, and I like them. Um, I think that he's doing a lot of things. He's helping them before he just moves in uh, for, you know, the big answer, right, for the big finish. He um, helps them process things, right? And And he's still more about leading them to see the answer than he is just telling them, right? That's why he didn't, um, um, he didn't, he didn't lead with this in the, at the beginning, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Good. Roger, that's a great question. Um, let me, uh, let me, let me come back to that when we get to Elrond's paragraph. We're almost there. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Freebird says, I think we should patent the term Elrond's squirrel speech. Uh, yes. I also kind of like that turn of phrase. Um, uh, I've already forgotten who was it who said that. Uh, about it. What was it about it? It turning to squirrels. Right. Like, you know, he Gandalf set him up and it, and it, and it, and, uh, and, it, and, and it all, <laughs> it all, it all went to the squirrels. What, what was the, what was, the, oh yeah, Nancy. And, and it all came to squirrels. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It all came to squirrels. I love it. Um, that, that, that seems like a really applicable phrase, doesn't it? You know, I mean, I think, I feel like there are lots of contexts in life where we could apply that phrase. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. Um, good, Nathan. Yeah, uh, Nathan is thinking. So, not going to. Um, not going to lie, Nathan. I think it'd be really funny. I would give. Um, 
um, I would give Aristor even more props. If at the end of that speech, who will read this riddle for us? He turns to Bilbo. That'd be hilarious, right? Because um, remember, Bilbo retold the entire riddle game, not omitting a single riddle earlier on in the council, right? Who will read this riddle for us? Bilbo, right? Um, that would be hilarious. Um, but I don't think he's doing that. Um, as much fun as that would be, it doesn't feel to me like Aristor's kind of comedy. You know, I just, I don't think, um, I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, now, Lissalinde, that's a great question. Um, I said that Aristor was probably looking at Elrond when he asks this question. Um, and she's curious about why I don't think he's looking at Gandalf. Um, Well, I, the fact that Elrond speaks next, Nathan, is certainly the number one thing that leads me to think. That, and also that he's Elrond's guy. I mean, he's like, you know, um, he's like Elrond's right-hand dude, right? I mean, he's the only counselor of Rivendell who's named, uh, that's who's not Gorfindel, right, who's named in the council. So he seems to have some kind of seniority here in Rivendell. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, and then, and the fact that Elrond responds, um, on behalf of everybody, none here can do so. Right. Um, so let's, um, let's look at this, uh, let's look at Elrond, the structure of Elrond's response. Cause I think it's pretty cool. Who will read this riddle for us? Now, again, back to the riddle for a second to lead into this and what that and what that means, why he says it that way. The reason it's a riddle, it's not a dilemma, it's a riddle. Right? It's it, it, the, the point that and this I think is the central point that Aristotle is making. Okay, the first point he's making is guys, shut up, stop fighting. But the second point that he's making is don't mistake things here. The problem here is not we're trying to figure out the best possible solution, right? There are two options. Which one are, is better off, right? You know, which, which has the best odds for success? Which is the most prudent course for us to take? Exactly, Tony, because that assumes that there is a solution. That's his point. He's not only saying, let's loop back to Gorfindel's cogent summary of the issue. He does do that, but he does take it one step further. Hide the ring forever or to unmake it. As Gorfindel says, those are our two options, but both are beyond our power. We can't do either one, people. The issue isn't which one do we do. It's what do we do when there don't seem to be any options at all, in fact. We can't unmake it, and we can't hide it. Gorfindel's let's chuck it into the ocean suggestion was a really good suggestion. I mean, that was at least achievable, right? But Gandalf shoots that down. So, 
Aristotle points out, we have no viable options on the table here. We've established we can't do something like put it somewhere that we believe to be inaccessible, like the bottom of the sea, because to do so does not make is an abdication of the job that's given to us, right? It's avoiding the task that's been laid in front of us by Providence, as Gandalf has been suggesting, right? We need to seek to make a final end to this. So we need to find a once-for-all solution to this problem. And we've got nothing. We've got nothing. Both are beyond our power. So... Who will read this riddle for us? Now, he does suggest that there is an answer. It's not an obvious answer. I think he's he's calling it a riddle. He's characterizing it as a riddle. Because like a riddle, there is an answer. It's just not obvious at first. Right? I mean, one of the points of a riddle is to make the thing seem impossible. Right? Like, you know, thinking about Bilbo's riddles. Think about the time riddle for instance, right? Um, that's the one, of course, you'll recall that Bilbo was, um, uh, you know, this thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, um, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, right? Um, all these things. And Bilbo, Bilbo's first thought is completely down the wrong line, right? He's trying to think of some horrible giant or, or monster that did all of those things. And he can't think of anything, right, that could have done all those things. But he had some feeling that the answer was something quite different. Well, that's how riddles work. That's the point about riddles, right, um, is that the answer is something quite different. When it looks like, you know, it's sort of setting you up to think on the surface, to think about the obvious solutions to it. But those are all going to lead you to dead ends. They're designed to, right, by the riddle. And it's only when you can think at it, when you can see it from a different perspective, when you can look at it from a different angle, that you suddenly say, oh, chestnuts, chestnuts, right? It's obvious once you see the answer. Like most riddles, when you see the answer. Um, so that seems to be... So again, I don't take Gorfindel saying, who will read this riddle for us, as seeing like, well, we're screwed, right? You know, that's, there's, that's, that's hopeless, Right. He's not saying that. But I think that he is saying we need a different perspective on this. We've made suggestions. So like the throw it in the ocean suggestion by Gorfindel is like Bilbo's what giant did all of those horrible things. Right. Um, it's, he's thinking along those lines. He's kind of following along, following the invitation of the riddle. Well, if we, you know, is there something we can do with this to hide it forever or, you know, to dis destroy it? Um no. Um, yeah. Um, good. Matt was saying another interesting thing is uh, a callback to Bilbo's riddle game, one where the solution was uh, uh, not uh, uh, was to not use a traditional application of the genre. What is what's in my pockets is not the usual entry, just as the dilemma before them is going to require them to view the other two options differently than anyone has before. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, um, yes, Freebird, exactly. He is defining what the riddle is. Who will read this riddle for us? 
and Elrond says, none here can do so. Great, Elrond. Thanks for that. Um, was that the council stronger than Mor- Morgul spells? <laughs> right? I thought Boromir's got to be thinking like, look, I've seen Morgul spells. Right? That was way below the standard of Morgul spells. Right? When are we going to make with the councils here? Um, uh, then Elrond clarifies. At least none can foretell what will come to pass if we take this road or that. Um, so his response is really interesting. He's not, in the end, avoiding the subject, because he says, but it seems to me now clear which is the road that we must take. He's not going to duck it. He's not going to say both no and yes. He's not going to leave it up to everybody else to decide. He's been leading them gently in this direction, but it's come now to the point, this is the climax, when he is going to declare his advice, his counsel, his reading of the riddle, right? But first, before he does that, he emphasizes, if by a reading of the riddle, what you want is somebody who can foretell what's going to come to pass, somebody who's going to predict the future, don't ask me. I'm not a fortune teller. And nobody can do that. None can foretell what will come to pass if we take this road or that. Um, I can't tell you. Um, I can't tell you that um, what is the destined thing to happen. Um, I'm not going to make any prophecies here, right? I am not going to, like, we don't look for the answer as to what is supposed to happen from me. Um, so I love his decreasing of expectations, right? Um, but it's not just decreasing expectations. I mean, yes, <clears throat> he, um, he, he's doing that. Uh, to some extent. Um, but um, but yes, uh, uh, Matt from Wisconsin, I agree. Um, he makes it clear that there is not a certain end. Um, um, I agree. I think that it is, it is not only... When he says none can foretell what will come to pass, he is not just saying there isn't anybody here. All of us present lack the capacity. Right? Um He's saying what will come to pass is not foretellable. It is not foreseeable. Even the Valar don't know what's going to happen. And I think that's what he's reminding everybody of. The future is, is unknown. Don't expect. Don't think that that's... And, you know, here I wonder if to some extent he's... Um, uh, if to some extent he's... Um, Almost not not directly. It's not like he's rebuking Boromir or addressing Boromir specifically, but um, Boromir's quest was to come to Imladris in order to hear the meaning of riddling words, right? To have his dream interpreted so that they would know what what they're supposed to do, what's supposed to happen, right? Um, 
he's come to Imladris almost like one would come to an oracle. And Elrond, I think, importantly, starts by saying, I'm no oracle, right? I'm not going to predict the future, either in straightforward or cryptic words. Um, none can foretell what will come to pass if we take this road or that. Um, and again, I do think it's not just that's above my pay grade. This is that can't be done. Um, that can't be done. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And Eruahil, absolutely. Um, it suggests human freedom is needed then to move beyond the music. Yes, yes. Um, okay. Sorry, I'm making my resisting tangents faces. All I will say is when we were reading Morgoth's Ring and discussing Morgoth's Ring in the Mythgard Academy in the fall of last year, um, rereading the Aino Lindale in the context in which it was rewritten in the 50s um, and the ways in which that differs from the published Aino Lindale, there were several passages that blew my mind that I can never read in the same way again. And you quoted one of them. Um, uh, anyway, so, but I, that's why I'm trying to resist. Cause I like even my resistance of, uh, uh, of tangents is, uh, uh, quite long. I know. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. All right. So, <laughs> Sorry, oh, too hang, hanging too much. The difference that I'm pointing to is that there was explicitly an elvish narrator. That the Ainulindale was narr was being narrated to a human audience from an elvish point of view, and therefore speaking not with the voice of God, not with this high-level authority that it sounds like when you just read the published Aino Lindale, it sounds like those passages that talking about the, you know, the, uh, the difference between the fates of elves and men. Um, it sounds like we're, we're hearing this, like with the highest level of authority, right? But when you read it instead in the frame in which Tolkien wrote it, which is, this is an elf speaking to a human and explicitly opining spitballing from the elvish perspective what they theorize is the human fate and how the human fate differs from the elvish fate it is completely different and the, there are several passages in the island where like, my mind was blown i'm like i can never hear those passages the same way again because i'd always heard them with that resonant king james you know, version authority uh, behind them. And um, that's not what Tolkien wrote when he wrote that originally. Um, so anyway, that's what blew my mind. Um, that's me avoiding the tangent. So I'm so, so glad I steered clear of that. Um, um, uh, so yeah, wh where do you find it, Matt? Yeah, Morgoth's Ring. Um, it's in the, there's a, there's a, there's, you, if you look in the table of contents, you can see the bits on the Aino Lindale. Um, it's, I think, the Aino Lindale B text or C text. Look for the, 
the flat earth version, not the round earth version. Um, uh, the discussion of Morgoth's ring is on our YouTube channel uh, and on the Mythgard Academy uh, you, uh, um, uh, feed and stuff as well. Uh, anyway, uh, huge stuff. Like I said, totally blew my mind. But anyway, um, so I said, phew, good thing. Good thing I resisted and didn't talk about that. That would have taken a long time. Anyway, OK, back to Elrond. Um, but it seems to me now clear which is the road that we must take. OK, so that's a pretty strong statement, Right. Having said, on the one hand, not foretelling over here, right? Not foretelling. This is not a prophecy. Um, nobody can foretell what's going to happen. But it does seem to me now clear which is the road that we must take. Now, I want to return to the comment that one of you made a long time ago scrolling I'm scrolling <laughs> Roger there it is Roger Wilco said um, several things Elrond has said makes me doubt he's been pushing a foregone conclusion the entire time um, the tale of Frodo was most strange to me seems to imply he's only hearing all of it for the first time even his diversion to squirrels is more him thinking out loud and pondering whether Bombadil would be helpful by now here um, it seems to me now clear. I'm taking him to mean that this is the moment he finally achieved a clear picture of what the decision should be. Um, I like that. I think that you're right with a proviso. I kind of think he did have this in mind all along. And the primary reason I think that is that Gandalf clearly had it in mind all along. Um, I mean, Gandalf said this back in back end. Uh, in the shadow of the past, right? I mean, he's been talking about taking the ring to Mordor. The only question that Gandalf left open way back in chapter two of the book was maybe it will be your quest, Frodo. Maybe, Frodo, it will be your quest to seek them out, or maybe that task will be left for others, right? Gandalf's not yet 100% sure whose job it's going to be, but that somebody's going to have that job to do, Gandalf is pretty clear on. Um, but... So, Elrond. Is Elrond, like, plus-minus on the Gandalf plan until this moment? Right? When now, I mean, so, like, can we sort of sub, you know, have a little subtext here, a little parenthetical remark of Elrond saying to himself, well, dang it, I guess El Gandalf is right all along, right? It's possible. I, but, but, Roger, I don't think you're wrong either. I don't think that you're wrong. And I think that he is, it, it, this would be my reading. I think that Elrond and Gandalf have talked about it. I think that both of them did come into this meeting believing that this was going to lead up to somebody having to take the ring into the fire, right? Um, Mount Doom, the, you know, the trip to Mount Doom is pretty much where we're, it's, it's the only option, right? Um, is, I think, what, bo what both Gandalf and Elrond were thinking. But, I, but again, Roger, I don't think you're wrong. I think that he has heard things. Um, the now, I, I, I could agree with that reading. It seems to me now clear. Um, I think it's the clarity that's new, not the idea. He knew that this was going to be the way. He knew this, you know, Gandalf has said it. I'm sure Gandalf has said it to him. Um, Right. Emily says he knew, but he was keeping his options open. Yeah. Yeah. I think that he is 
he is saying, and Roger, I, I agree with you that I don't think he's just being disingenuous there. He is saying, based on what we have heard here today, based on the actual live and sort of unpredictable, unpredictable testimonies, unpredictable because people keep interrupting, um, uh, you know, outcome of this council, like based on what I've heard here today, the conclusion that I draw is this thing that I'm about to say. But again, but I don't think it was new to him. I don't think he was coming up with this on the spot. I think that he, what he's saying is he now, he, he, he feels confident. He's now ready to say, this is the answer to the riddle. Like that moment when you see the answer to the riddle and it seems obvious, right? As, um, uh, as Gandalf will say before the gates of Moria, right? Um, Elrond is having that moment in response to Aristor's setup, right? Who will read this riddle for us? I have it. Absurdly simple. Like all riddles when you see the answer, right? Um, to Elrond, it now seems absurdly simple. It's, it's, it's clear to him now what all of these things are adding up to. And he summarizes. The westward road seems easiest, therefore it must be shunned. It will be watched. Too often the elves have fled that way. Now at this last, we must take a hard road, a road unforeseen. There lies our hope, if hope it be, to walk into peril, to Mordor. We must send the ring to the fire. Um, now, um, You know one thing that really interests me about this? The syntax. <laughs> I know. Uh, the syntax. The westward road seems easiest. Therefore it must be shunned. It will be watched. Too often the elves have fled that way. Now at the last, we must take a hard road, a road unforeseen. There lies our hope, if hope it be, to walk into peril, to Mordor. We must send the ring to the fire. Notice that syntactically, stylistically, he doesn't only reduce himself to clipped, simple sentences. He gets fragmentary, right? These are like bits that he's throwing out. Very staccato. Absolutely. I agree. Um, the westward road seems easiest. Simple statement. Therefore, it must be shunned. Simple conclusion. It will be watched. Justification for the conclusion? Too often the elves have fled that way. Okay, those at least are all sentences, or mostly. Therefore it must be shunned technically is not a complete sentence. Therefore it must be shunned is a subordinate clause. Um, but anyway, at least it had a, sen a subject and a verb, so that's something. Um, 
too often the elves have fled that way. Um, and that one is interesting because that's the only... Um, No. Both of those two sentences. The westward road seems easiest. It must be shunned. It will be watched. Three sentences in a row, just simple subject, verb sentences, right? Um, With the therefore thrown in as a transition, which has the benefit of making that second one uh, fragment, in fact. Then... Um, and yeah, Tony, I agree. He must have taken a pause before therefore. Absolutely agree with that. That's why that's printed as a as a fragment, right? Because if it were punctuated correctly, right? Proper English would be the westward road seems easiest, a semicolon, therefore it must be comma, it must be shunned, right? That would be the that would be the the proper way to punctuate that sentence. Um, but we have a more significant pause, right? The westward road seems easiest. Therefore, it must be shunned. It's like, it's like a setup, right? He's just said, it seems now to be clear, which is the road we must take. The westward road seems easiest. Great, we're done here, right? That's west, uh, westward we go, right? It's almost like he's suckering people into that, Right? It's not quite a major look moment, right? But he's he's laying it out, right? And the very first thing he says is misleading. And Tony, I totally agree about that pause there, right? Um, the westward road seems easiest. Therefore, it must be shunned. It will be watched. Too often... The elves have fled that way. Now, the too often really stands out because, again, he's had those three in a row. Again, the therefore is a transitional thing. But he's had three in a row simple subject-verb clauses, right? And then, too often, the elves have fled that way. So he doesn't say, the elves have fled that way too often. By leading with the adverb, right? Too often. The elves have fled that way. That sentence really stands out, and that phrase, too often, at the beginning, stands out even more, right? Um, because of the because of the having established that really very audible uh, and very clear pattern. The westward road seems easiest. It, therefore, it must be shunned. It will be watched. Too often, the elves have fled that way. Now, at this last, we must take a hard road. He does it again, two sentences in a row now. Too often, the elves have fled that way. Now at this last, we must find a hard road, right? Starting both of those two sentences with adverbial phrases. Too often, and now at this last. The first one points backwards. Too often in the past, the elves have fled that way. Now at this last, here at the end of time. At the end of our careers, the careers of the elves, the end of the time of the elves in Middle-earth, we must take a hard road, a road unforeseen. We can't go west anymore. The argument is not only... (laughs) 
Aronoff says, Hey, Galdor, where are you going? <laughs> Imagining Galdor running screaming from the room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is a certain amount of elf shaming going on here to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. I don't know if shaming is exactly right, but he's pointing out their tendency, right? I would almost imagine Aranas, I'm now picturing when he says, but it seems to me now clear which is the road we must take. The westward road seems easiest. Does Galdor brighten up? Right? Yeah! To the West. That's what we're all about at the Grey Havens, right? And then he says, therefore, it must be shunned. Oh, great. It will be watched. Well, yes. Yeah, we did establish that. Too often the elves have fled that way. So he is anti-elf fleeing. He is, it seems, at least indirectly, referring back to the Boromir-Galdor exchange. Right? Um, even perhaps addressing... The potential, as I said, I don't believe that Boromir was dissing Galdor. I think that he was speaking with dignity, but I don't think, you know, a, a, a great deal of dignity. Um, but I don't think that he was, um, even by implication, saying, don't worry, we're going to give our lives so that you guys can carry on running away like you always do. Like, I, I don't think that he was trying to shame them by saying that. Um but, um, but Elrond still kind of addresses that, right? Um, uh, too often the elves have fled that way. Now at this last, we must take a hard road. Before, too often, the elves have run away, have just left. Middle-earth. And again, here he's coming back to Gandalf's point about, like, it is our responsibility to take thought and try to make a final end to this. We have a job. A responsibility has been given to us. Providence has laid this opportunity in our laps, and we can't turn away from it. We shouldn't turn away from it, anyway. And if we seek only our own safety, that would be failure. So, we can't go west. Here's one thing that I really like about this. One thing that I really like about this is that I have to admit I have never loved Elrond's therefore it must be shunned, it will be watched argument. Um, on its own, that is. Just like as an independent justification. Um, the, we're going to do the thing that Sauron least expects is an argument that, to me, kind of wears thin. And we'll see that I'm not the only one for whom that argument kind of wears thin. Um, uh, Boromir's going to object to it later, too. But anyway... Um, not in the council, later on. Anyway, but the point is, um, that's not the sum of his argument. He's not saying, hey, there's a simple answer to, th to this. Best we, thing we can do is what? 
Sauron least expects. That, that'll be the smartest thing. That's not what he's saying. Um, he does give a reason why they shouldn't go west. Sauron definitely will expect us to do that, because we always have done that. Go west, that is. Flee to the sea. Now at this last, we must take a hard road, a road unforeseen. There lies our hope, if hope it be, to walk into peril to Mordor. We must send the ring to the fire. Um, yeah. Um, it is a road unforeseen, but it's not just unforeseen by Sauron. I think his primary point there, yes, it's unforeseen by Sauron, and that'll have advantages down the road, but it's also a road unforeseen by them. When he says a road unforeseen, he's not, I think, giving an argument in defense of it. He's clarifying what he means by saying we must take a hard road, a road unforeseen by us. Go back to Aristor's riddle. Now that Elrond has said it, we must send the ring to the fire. Now that Elrond has said it, doesn't the riddle seem obvious? To hide the ring forever or to unmake it. Those are the only two options, but both are beyond our power. No, they're not. They're only beyond your power if you think in the traditional elvish paradigm, which means what can we do by our own crafts and skill, or... Can we pack up and go to Valinor? Like those are plans A and B in whatever order you tend to pursue them, depending on what kind of elf you are, right? If you're one of the Nandor, you know, you might go one way. If you're the Noldor, you might go another way. But, um, but that's, um, that's. How they're thinking. That's what makes this an unsolvable riddle from where Aristor is sitting, right? And all Elrond does is look at it from a l different angle. It is the thing that they haven't thought of yet, Tony, and it's, un it's the thing they haven't thought of because they have not foreseen anything like this possibility. This is never how the elves have played it. Ever. Well, that's not exactly true. There's only once that the elves have ever tried something like this. Well, not quite true. Twice, maybe. Do you see the parallels? To walk into peril? What's the normal elvish... Uh, Ouch, Fourth Thoughtless says the Nandor's choices see none of the above. Yeah, Baron and Luthien. Yes, Baron and Luthien. Um, the normal Elvish approach is let's resist, right? Let's... Um, Baron and Luthien took the road unforeseen and walked into peril to Mordor, right? The other thing 
the other the other one that I'm thinking of is Arendel. There are other examples. Yes, the rescue of Mithros, for instance, is, is is sort of a smaller example of that, smaller than Baron and Luthien. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to diminish the rescue of Mithros, which is a pretty big deal. Um, now I know Arendel went to Valinor, right? He went to the west, uh, uh, but not in the same way, right? Um, he did take a road unforeseen, for sure. A, a road never yet traveled. Um, he did walk into peril. What he and everybody with him assumed would be certain death. Breaking the ban. Here, remember the words of Amandil at the end of the Akalabeth, who saw himself, who believed that he was recapitulating, who attempted to recapitulate um, the actions of Arendel. And when he explains it, we can see from that how he contextualized, how he understood, um, you know, through the Numenorean tradition, what the voyage of Arendel meant. And what it meant to Imondil was, I'm going to break the ban and take the punishment for that willingly upon myself, hoping that maybe, despite the fact that no hope will be left for me, right? I will surely perish. I will justly be executed for breaking the ban. But maybe before I'm killed, I can deliver the message and they can help everybody else. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Arendel, right. True, fourth thoughtless, lots of other messengers went before him. Kind of. Doesn't make it any less of a hard road. Um, and the success of it was unforeseen, but no, I, I, you're right. You're right. Um, but anyway, point is, those are the two that I was thinking of. Um, this is the path that we have to take. And so this is one of the other reasons why I'm thinking, Roger, that we must send the ring to the fire isn't something that has just occurred to him during the last couple hours as he's heard this. I do believe that he has gained confidence and clarity, that he now sees the picture much clearer than he did before and is now really confident that this is the road that we must take. Must is a strong word there, right? He doesn't say the road that we should take, you know, the road that we might take, um, the road that we could try, right? It seems to me clear now clear which is the road that we must take. Again, that's what I think he's gotten in the now, is that clarity and the confidence to say must. Um but I think that he sees the overall pattern. Elrond, this is what makes, this is why Elrond is the wisest lore master of Middle-earth. This is why you go to him to seek the answer, uh, the explanation of riddling words, right? Um, that's why you look at him when you ask who will read this riddle for us. Not just because he's really smart, but because he has this bigger picture. The lore, the history, right? He can see the bigger picture, Um It is time for us to take a road unforeseen, not just by sound, but by us. It's time for us not to play the usual elvish script. Our hope, if there be hope, it lies on the road unforeseen. And the one thing that I would also say, um, uh, 
the one thing that I would also say, uh, Roger, and I keep coming back to you because you made that wonderful observation. Um, the one other thing in defense of the idea that I think that he is not, he didn't prepare this speech, you know, last night or four years ago or whenever Elrond does last minute preparations. Um, he, I don't think this is a prepared speech. I think that part of what we're seeing in the syntax is him still processing this. I think he doesn't know how to say it. It seems clear to him what road they must take. Now at this last, we must take a hard road, a road unforeseen. That peril, that, that structure at the end of that, I talked about the beginning of that sentence, the end of that sentence, um, he starts speaking in appositives, the A-P-P, right? A-P-P-O-S-I-T-I-V-E, um, appositives. Um, appositives are when you say something and then you say it again in different words, right? Um, we must take a hard road, a road unforeseen. It's the same thing, said in different words. There lies our hope, if hope it be, to walk into peril, to Mordor. Again, see the appositive shape there? To walk into peril, to Mordor. It's almost like he's not saying it, but it's almost like you could insert the phrase, I mean, in there. To walk into peril. I mean, to Mordor. We must take a hard road. I mean, a road unforeseen, right? It's, it's, he's not saying that he's too good of an orator to do that, but... He's, um, uh, he is, it sounds like, almost still processing this himself, trying to figure out how to say it, to walk into peril, to Mordor. It's almost like, that one especially, doesn't it? Doesn't it almost sound like he's procrastinating it? It might just be a, for dramatic effect that he wanted to separate it out. To walk into peril. To Mordor. Like, let me, let me build you up to this. First, let me get you comfortable with the concept of walking into danger. Right? Um, and again, this goes back to the westward road seems easiest. Right? It's not just that we should shun the west road because it's easiest. We should... We shouldn't be looking for easy. The secret to the riddle, the different angle from which you look at the riddle in order to solve it, is you stop trying to look for the best answer. They're trying to say, which path has the greatest chance of success, right? Which one could we do best that might have the best results? Well, that seems like a perfectly logical way to look at it, right? A very sensible way to approach the question. And he says, we, we can't do it that way. We've got to look at this riddle from a different angle. And that is, we need to find not the safest path, path but the most dangerous path. Not the easiest paths, path, but the hardest path. The road unforeseen. His conclusion... His conclusion there, we must send the ring to the fire. The last simple sentence, right? 
we must send the ring to the fire. Um, in which he gives the shocking conclusion. Yeah, clearly. The answer is, let's walk into Mordor. Let's do that. That's what we should do. Um, but I think his real conclusion is, there lies our hope, if hope it be. There lies our hope, if hope it be. Our hope. You know what interests me most about that sentence? The word it. He doesn't say there lies our hope if hope there be. Like, if there be any hope, it lies there. On, you know, the unforeseen road, the hard road. There lies our hope if hope it be. What's the antecedent of the pronoun it, do you think? Road? It's got to be road. I don't think it's hope. Maybe it's hope. There lies our hope. If that thing there be hope. Our hope lies there, you know, on the hard road. If that thing that's lying on the hard road is in fact hope. If it be in fact hope. Yeah. To walk into peril. Now this, this one, even more than the therefore sentence, is an unashamed sentence fragment to walk into peril to mortar to walk into peril I think that's in a positive too so I'm trying to think syntactically how that infinitive phrase works, to walk into peril, I mean. Like the previous fragment, therefore it must be shunned, is only a fragment because there's a period instead of a semicolon in front of it, right? Um, you know, there's no independent clause between those end marks, so it's a fragment. But it's almost a complete sentence. It's just a complete sentence. It's a complex sentence with a dramatic pause in the middle. Right, So we can still kind of make sense of it syntactically, if you see what I mean. But I'm trying to make sense of to walk into peril, and I think it's in a positive. Um, I think it's in a positive, if hope it be, to walk into peril. That's the hope. He's restating hope. There lies our hope, if hope it be. So we've got like two qualifiers or restatements of hope. 
There lies our hope. That's the conclusion, right? There lies our hope. That's what's now clear to him. It is clear to him that their hope lies on the hard road, the road unforeseen. If hope it be, conditional clause, subjunctive clause, if hope it be, it's a theoretical. He's not certain if it actually is hope or not. It might be hope, that thing. Sounding less clear as he goes along. And then he's got to clarify. So wait, so what's, what's the hope again? To walk into peril. To Mordor. Wait, wait, where does our hope lie? There, oh, walking into peril. To walk into peril. That's, that's the hope. And by peril you mean yeah, Mordor. Okay, had to spell it out. Had to actually drop the proper noun to make sure everyone, there can be no question about this. Walk into Mordor is what... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I also am thinking that there's something lost in translation there with the hope. There lies our hope if hope it be. So what do you think? few options. There lies our Estelle, if Estelle it be. There lies our Amdir, if Amdir it be. There lies our Amdir, if Estelle it be, or there lies our Estelle, if Amdir it be. What do we think? Music all thinks they match. Both are Estelle. Here's the thing that makes me pause about that. The word Estelle is not a word you would put in an if clause if you're Elrond, is it? I mean, if it's Estelle, then it's Estelle. Right? You don't, you don't if Estelle. You don't if it. Yeah, I'm dear for both. If there be I'm dear. Because you, you can if I'm dear all day long. Right? Is there any hope? Is there any chance of this turning out well? Right? Might we get a good result? Right? Anything that makes you want to, if you still feel like maybe consulting a magic eight ball, you're talking about Amdir. Right? You don't if Estelle. There lies, if it be Amdir. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I think it's all I'm dear, Michael, but but hang on now. Don't lose confidence in Elrond. 
because I agree with Heir of Numenor there. It parallels the nun can foretell what will come to pass. Remember, there is a certain way in which all of their previous discussion hinged on Amdir. What's our best shot? Right? So um, let's calculate the odds and let's take the option with the best odds. Right? That's Amdir. Straight up Amdir calculation. What's our best chance to win? And he says the solution to the riddle, guys, is not to go there. Don't look for the easiest path. Don't look for the greatest certainty of success. Enough with the Amdir. If we have any Amdir, the only Amdir we have is it lies along the road which seems to be the abandonment of Amdir. The hard road. To walk into peril. To Mordor. We're not going to get good odds on that one. It's the road unforeseen because we're wise. And we can tell that, statistically speaking, the odds of that working out, really low. But I, Elrond, am here to tell you, it seems to me clear that that's the way we must take. There lies, if there be any hope, I'm speaking in ifs and I'm speaking in the subjunctive here because I don't know if there's any Omdir here. His point is not recalculating the Omdir. His point is saying, give up on the Omdir. Abandon all Omdir. Right? Let's go to Mordor instead. So I think, in the end, Michael, exactly what he's saying is Estelle instead of Omdir, basically. Right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, He's not saying to abandon all hope. That's not quite right. But he's reading the... He's reading the... um, uh, He's reading the science here. He's drawing conclusions about the direction this narrative is tending. And he's saying, I've seen this pattern before. It's, um, it's not time to do the smart thing. It's time to turn the boat around and start sailing towards Valinor. Despite the fact, Fourth Dauntless, that that's never worked. Right? It's time to set off alone like Beren to... Thangoradrim to try to get the Silmaril back by yourself, which is dumb. You should at least take your girlfriend. Everybody knows that. Um, I think I think that's where he ends up. I don't think the idea is coming to him for the first time, but as, as I said, I don't think that this is a speech he's prepared. I think he is thinking this through. And it's possible that in the end one like what he's saying inside his own head to himself is 
Darn it, Gandalf was right. Maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Let's leave it there, because it is super late. I am keeping you guys irresponsibly late tonight, and I totally shouldn't do that. Um, so um, we will pick up next time with uh, walking into Mordor. Walking into peril. Walking into peril. Um, uh, and we will see uh, what we have to say about this. It's uh, almost almost time uh, for uh, Boromir. It's been like seconds since Boromir interrupted, so um, we're due. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining me for our uh, text discussion tonight. And we are going to uh, field trip time. We're going to probably have, have to have a slightly abbreviated field trip because it's so late and I've kept you guys so late. But let's do it anyway. All right. Hang on a second. I got to wake my mouse connection back up. There we go. All right. Okay. Well, unfortunately, Valori could not be here with us again. Uh, she is still ill, though getting better. And uh, so we're going to head back to Holtvis again. And we'll meet up in Holtvis and we'll ride up north towards the Carrick. Um, we have... Uh, we're almost done with the Vales of Anduin. Only one key place to go, yep. That's right. So we should be able to do a quick scouting of the countryside, unless I spot any squirrels or anything. Um, and uh, then we can head back to... So yeah, I'm taking the... I think I was insufficiently clever. Yes, I was. Uh, to uh, re-bond myself to the this milestone, so I still gotta head down to the stable master here. It's all good. Yep. Whoa. Uh-oh, I took a wrong turn. Taking the scenic route to the stable master. You can't yeah. get there from there. I know you can't. I had forgotten about this place. The dwarf statue in the middle of Bree? Mm-hmm. Well, to be fair, they occasionally update things in Bree and around. Did I not see this before? Possibly. Is this new? Did you used to be able to get down here? I believe so, and then they took it away. Maybe I only came down here during the taking it away part because yes exactly Nancy is saying I have no memory of this place that's exactly what I'm thinking oh man sorry yeah uh, taking the scenic route I know or a non-route wow this is awesome I haven't like gotten lost in Bree in forever I mean I know where I am now but that was cool. I should pay less attention more often. 
There's a quote of the decade. Yeah, that was really good. Okay, down to hold this. Who built that dwarf statue in Bree? Probably uh, a developer by the name of Scary Crow, who in his spare time uh, redid Bree some years yeah. ago. No, not the developer. I mean the dwarf. It must have been a dwarf. I mean, in game. Oh, yeah. In game world. Well, is it uh, I don't think, or Longbeard? I don't think that Grifflet was there. I don't think that Grifflet saw that when he was doing Bree. Was this dude always here? This red-headed dude? Yeah, that's a quest thing. Yeah. Okay, I guess I, I was thinking of these outer gates here. With the two wooden dudes. Okay. Sorry. Okay, you guys are probably all already here because probably most of you didn't get lost in Bree on the way to the Stable Master. So, um... Alright. It's a good thing I'm going straight to the goal here tonight. Uh, that's the plan. Now, let's see... We're going to go north, and we're going to find the Carrick, and we're going to kind of take a right. Kind of. Alright. That's totally the plan. Without any... But as, as we know, the plans of Mice and Professor Self... Yeah. <laughs> Without any distractions or any false turns, we're going to go to the Carrick and we're going to take a right and head out across the lands that we were looking at from afar and above at the Carrick. I am sure that's what's going to happen. Where are we on the map? Okay. We're making progress. We're riding up past the bridge now which makes me wonder where was the bridge supposed to come out is this tumble downhill yeah see there it is I can see it right up there so hang on so the road actually came out like here ish no still not quite there no, it's further back. Further back? It's actually kind of, yeah, it's kind of hard to see the other side of the bridge because it is covered over with uh, trees and, and... Oh, yeah, no, you're right. We're looking at it from the side now. I'm sorry. No, you're right. Okay, it must have been further back. Okay. All right. That's fine. Oh, you found a ways back? Okay, good. At least as long as it exists. As long as it exists. Nice little real... Here. I and think that's the first time they had a proper rill in the game. Like a tiny little crick. Yeah. Was that the first one? Yeah, pretty much. They really didn't do a lot with, like, tiny... They always go for the big honking rivers, like, you know, the Undoing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I was... Uh, it caught my eye as I just rode by. I was about to stop and say, what's that, when I noticed it was a stream. So, I mean, it kind of struck me in that way as well. 
um, of being something rather out of the ordinary. So uh, these boulders that are all here, like some giant flung them out here and like the Carrick is, uh, you know, like a big, huge rock flung out into the stream by a giant among giants. Very possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because, of course, in the Misties, we did have trolls. Right. So that's a that's the Carrick there. And these things that are stalking us are wargs, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they're Gundabad wargs. They're a ways from home. Are they? Well, I guess we're getting kind of closer, aren't we? Okay. Here is the split in the road. Okay. But we're... I suppose there's nothing up to the north until we cross the border. And I did cross the border last time, didn't I? Into the next map up. Accidentally, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, I've seen it. Okay, fine. Turning right. <laughs> Off we go, turning right. Now, notice how the road changes immediately. There's still some evidence, not of flagstones, but... Wait, oh, and now we've ended. No more road. Why does it go even this far? So it's, it becomes overgrown as soon as you go this way. And then it peters out sharply. Like. Huh. Oh, wait, no. Then it picks up again here. So it's still here. It's just mostly over, you know, fully overgrown in, in places, right? In chunks. There, right there. Here it comes again. Boy, it's, uh, it's trying to shake us. Not a lot of traffic out this way. Right. So this suggests that this was a well-traveled road once. Which means... Right, of course Commerce. it would be. Because this is going to be the road that's going to go up to the Mirkwood Gate. Not the mm -hmm. one that they were aiming for originally, which is the one that we were looking at the gate down here that the road that the bridge was leading to primarily, it would seem. But there is this secondary gate up here, the one that Bjorn leads them to, which is a legitimate path. It's, it's the elf path, right? Um, so it's not just like Bjorn is like, I know a place where there's kind of a crack in the trees that you can sneak through, right? He's bringing them to a legitimate gate into a legitimate road through Mirkwood. And so that's what this road must have gone to before it, fell into disuse which has led it to become large very largely overgrown and the elves would have tr trodden very lightly so they wouldn't have ground much of a path down with heavy carts and whatnot oh who the bjornings you mean well the elves if they also use this for commerce right the elves if they used this yes and it does suggest that well i kind of wonder if dwarves did use it more in the old days but yeah these big patches of flowers which are Really lovely, by the way. Um, the bees love them. Yes. I love the bees course, flying around. Tor, uh, slightly left and behind you, is uh, vines, grapevines. Right, yeah, we saw, I saw, yeah, I forgot to comment on it, but I was noticing the vineyard. Um, I love the bees. The bees are such a wonderful touch. Non-aggressive insects that are part of the landscape is also a kind of a newish thing, right? Oh, there's those too. But um, but I love it. I love the buzzing of the bees around the flowers. 
boy, it's really hard to stick to this road. There we go. This is a little bit easier if you watch it on the mini-map, but then that doesn't help motion sickness. No. No, it does not. Okay. So these are his bee pastures, Bjorn's bee pastures were mm -hmm. coming through. And of course, these rocks that we're passing, this is the border of the original starting instance for, B, uh, for Bjornings. Right. Yes, I have vague memories of getting out about this far and vainly attempting to go further and being sadly and ultimately thwarted. Were they always this lovely? Is the pink no. new? I, I think th the pink is new. Um, I remember I the purple. I haven't done a Bjorning in a long time, but I, I think they did spruce the area up a little bit when they turned it into a regular questing area. Yeah. Because this all used to just be instanced elsewhere. And the developers can copy uh, certain zones and areas to have, like, two different versions, like, you know, the flooded and non-flooded and post-flooded... Uh, right, Isengard. Uh, Isengard, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or the five different versions of Minas Tirith. Right. Or um, Meduseld as well. Or maybe the soon-to-be five different versions of the Shire. Mm. Yes. May that day never come to pass. <laughs> How depressing would it be to have your character stuck in, like, the sharky phase of the Shire? Now, hang on a second. The road breaks off here. Where are we? Oh, man. Where, where's, where does this go? It's just me? Isn't there a road that leads up this way? Yeah. There, oh, no, it's it, to the red circle. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. I found where it's headed. And it doesn't go far. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Okay, so now my next question was going to be, does the road go straight to his door? And the answer is no. It continues on here past it, right? I mean, there's a branch that leads to his door. Although, I mean, the straighter path. I guess it does kind of look more like the road goes straight to his door and a branch goes off towards the forest. I ask because I'm, I'm thinking about this because this, again, this road and the apparent antiquity of the road suggests that dwarves probably made it in older times and that it's fallen into disrepair. But why would the road in the same state of disrepair be coming to Bjorn's house? Well, the doors would have to pay tolls to get through. Right. Which makes me wonder where the turnpikes are. I see no pikes. I, I'm personally guessing that, you know, these Bjorn and guards would be very sharp-eyed and they would see people passing through. And then if, for example, somebody tried to come through without paying the tolls, uh, they would have a swift, uh, a swift visitation of the, the 
the awnings. Right. Possibly invisible with axes. No, they did patch that out last week. Unfortunately, it was hilarious. That was really funny. It was. It made for a great clip. Oh, love the bees. The beehive's made of wicker? It appears to be so. Interesting. <laughs> Kyrie says if I like the bees, I should try the spring festival instances. Oh. Yeah, well, there there is a new festivity feature in uh, Grimbjorn. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's held. Uh, you meet up with him at the boat landing between um, Lossarnak and uh, South Pavilion. I haven't played through it yet myself. But it involves bees and flowers and stuff. Okay, so here's a question I'm trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out how many of these houses are original? How many of these structures are original? To Bjorn's time or beyond? To Bjorn's time. Because um, I'm assuming Bjorn built his hall. That might not be true, but I'm... I'm <laughs> Wait, Trifle, you escort the bees to pollinate Lasarnak? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's what I heard. So it's a bee escort quest. And the mobs are all goats? Oh, well, that figures. That, that tracks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay, well, anyway. I had to find some excuse for Bjorn, Agrim Bjorn being at the wedding in Minas Tirith, so he had a, obviously a way stop in between. I see. Right. Pursuing the pollination of Lasarnak. Sure. Okay. So. <clears throat> the houses are certainly all of a style. The, your basic sort of log cabin with very thick thatch thatch roofs. I like the way it's not framed in the same way that like um, the Rohirrim houses are, which they, they are often thatched as well. Not always, but often. Um, but they have like the, the, the high beams on the ends, you know? Right, um, right. The, these, the thatch is almost overgrowing the roofs. Yeah, it, it almost looks, they almost look like sort of snow drifts. You they actually kind of do. Yeah, on top of the buildings, which is kind of fun. And the beams aren't perfectly straight. Like, look at those, I mean, look at those beams. Like, what are those beams even doing? They're definitely more natural and functional rather than decorative. The Rohirrim were very fond of decoration. Yeah. Yeah, they're still they're still functional. left rough. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um, okay, sorry, I'm looking at the... Oh, this is the Bjorning trainer you can take that horse to, right? Mm -hmm. I remember that. It's been a long time since I've played my Bjorning. My Bjorning has been left... Uh, 
uh, she's my uh, cook alt, so I uh, she's been in the kitchen for a long time now. In the Shire, my favorite kitchen. Enormous honeycombs here. And these beams are just for the bees. It appears so. I mean, they're. I mean, you wouldn't need flying buttresses for this structure. No, it's not sure. supporting. It's not structural at all. That's clear. Those beams are just resting on the crown of the roof. Yeah, there's not even any ropes keeping them attached. Not that we can see. So yes, this seems to be like an outer framework slapped onto the house just to accommodate more honeycombs whose size make those squat little wicker uh, beehives look singularly inadequate. Well, if you look at the size of the I'm looking at right now, you can kind of see why the those are that small. Wait, when you're looking at the, when you're looking at the what? There, there is a, uh, a bee hovering over um, the beam that I'm looking at right now. Big. Wow. Yeah. Good grief! The one that's the size of a goat. Yes. Okay. The size of a small child. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yikes. Um. Okay. Right. Trifle and Kyrie are saying these are the ones that you escort to the fest in the fe in the festival instance. Mm -hmm. Um. Whoa. And there are big bee pets you can acquire in the game as well. Right. And there's the goat. Many goats. Boy, at that rate, I uh, would have expected the bee could just pretty much take out the goat. Whoa, right. And that's that a bee pet there? All right. Dumbledore the bumblebee. That's good. Mm -hmm. Strong work there, Rosie Lass. Dumbledore is the perfect name for your pet bee. Well, those are great fierce bees. Well, great anyway. And this one doesn't look so fierce. The one up on the... He looks a little fiercer. Um, is that a Hummer horn? JJ, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Oh, it comes with the name Dumbledore? Ah, well played then, Standing Stone. Well played. Yeah, they're generally pretty good about naming uh, the critters that they let us players have. We can, of course, rename them, but that's just too good of a name. Right, the default name is Dumbledore? Yeah. Yeah. That's, of course, what a Dumbledore is. A Dumbledore is a bumblebee. Uh, Tolkien uses the word Dumbledore in the Errantry poem. That's cool. I should dismount. I don't really need my horse here to nope. be going around. What an adorable little pig. That's a fraction of the size of that bee back there. Oh, it's a little piglet. I guess there's a stable master. Where does the stable master go to from here? Oh, South Bree. How about that? 
Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think you can get back here from from, from there. Right. Nope. Okay. So this the bee house over here. And they're all bee houses. There's bees everywhere, including in the trees. Hey there, Grimbyorn. Was this all here? Love the door. Yeah, the door is actually one of the more gorgeous bits of the architecture because it's. It seems like they literally took a tree, cut it in half, and just put the tree on the door. Yeah. But, you know, then you clearly see that it's a mirrored design, but still very well crafted. Right, and the oak leaves. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a fake tree that looks very much like a real tree. It's not a stylized tree like the white tree of Gondor. True enough. Uh, and it, it fits uh, really with the designs of this area. I mean, what isn't functional is natural. Right. Um, uh, they didn't do much other than lopping off branches to make the, the big beehive structures and whatnot. The honeycomb structures. Right there. Are these leaves? Does that, they are. Those are clusters of oak leaves. The brown. Yeah, they do look things. like, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, so here we have a lot of carving. Now, you're right, the Rohirrim would have had this kind of carving on every beam, right? Whereas the majority of the beams, at least the ones we can see here on the outside, are all left uncarven. Um, I'm uh, wondering about the lampposts. The lampposts are, uh, you know, have been fashioned. Yeah, I was just going to comment they, on the lampposts. Yeah, you know, they're, they're just... Maybe they were gifts from either the elves or the dwarves. Seems a good theory. Interesting how you've got the tree on the door is very symmetrical, but the, the branches on the window up above look almost natural. Like, they're not symmetrical. They're just kind of growing out from one side and half covering it. As if there was a tree off to the side, or mm -hmm. the doorpost itself is the tree. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't mean to, like, diss Grimbjorn here. I just want to look around before I go in. Oh, he won't mind. He'll just grump at you. But I figured What's really do that interesting anyway. is, because you're not at the certain point of the story, you don't see all the other NPCs that some of us might be seeing. Right. You'll get there someday. Yep. See, some of these little sheds, like we know that Bjorn had outbuildings because it's mentioned. This is a little outdoor bath. It is, it's a tub. This is not a tub. It's not a tub, it's a wheelbarrow? No, look at, look at the stains. Look at the stains. Remember we saw vines. Oh, it's a wine press, right. With bear paws in it. With right bear now. paws, yes, the best. Nice. Nice. Love it. It's like a bath. It's like a tub. It's a special kind of tub. So that little tub over there is definitely a bath because I see suds and stuff bubbling up. I think this was a gift. I am thinking it was elvish. It looks... Absolutely. It screams elvish to me. Exactly. This... Uh, this gray trellis work around the side, the wooden trellis, it's, mm -hmm. it's left as like raw wood um, because it's like for Bjorn. But yeah, that... that uh, and we know the elves love their wine. Yeah. 
yeah, that uh, this has this has Wood Elf written all over it. This says Thranduil thanks Grimbjorn for all his uh, years and years of uh, fine, fine drinking. That's right. That's right. Look at the bubbles coming up off the tub. Yeah, well, I think that's more of a bath thing, but I don't know anything like that that would have... But it's purpley. I, I don't remember the quest. There is a quest that you actually have to use these, but I don't honestly remember um, huh. if that's part of the winemaking process or not. Yeah. Because it looks like a bubble bath to me that somebody threw a bath bomb in. Yeah. Now, um, as... Uh... Nancy suggests the elves pay their toll in woodwork. Um, I could easily believe that that wine press was a was a gift. Was a toll. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, Rosie remembers the quest as you wash your feet. Okay, there you go. When you're done squishing the wine or the grapes into wine, your feet are going to be kind of dirty. Right. And now you've got the these cabins over here which with the laundry behind this looks like uh, you know family cabins like as the family expanded. See like these two buildings over here would be my top candidates for buildings that weren't here in Bjorn's time. They look like expansion cabins. Yeah they do look a little bit newer too in terms of the age of the uh, of the wood. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Okay. Pretty sure, JJ. What uh, what use Bjorn would have for gold anyway? Who's he gonna give it to? Who's gonna use gold? What he's gonna use to buy with gold? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Their tolls are high. Doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're taking coins for gold. All right. Love the inside. So we have a a traditional mead hall shape. Now the inside, the central hearth, you know, we have the authority of one of Tolkien's illustrations for this. We've got the the log section seats we've got the vegetarian meal Good berries porridge more berries honeycomb beeswax candles yeah love the beeswax candles cheddar bay biscuits right And here they go for more carving, uh, and this is where they really get fancy with their carving. If you look at, um, you know, oh wow, the back the, of the door, wow, looks really impressive. Mm-hmm. For one thing, but yes, I can see that it goes from the oak leaf clusters to, to bears, and bears deer and deer. Everywhere. Yeah. Alternating bears and stags. That's kind of interesting. And then, like, the branches behind it does also smack of a little bit of elvish filigree still. Oh, behind the bears and deer, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, 
I'm wondering, do you Elven think... craftsmen? Yeah, craftsmen? exactly. Do you think that's toll, toll work, too? Cause, I, I mean, that would make sense to me, because, I mean, what, besides the beer, the wine that we know that they would have traded, um, what would an elf have to give that Bjorn would want or need or yep. use? Mm-hmm. Exactly. But something that is is going to have the bear be in prominence, you know, hunter and possibly hunted, because the bear is behind the stag, you know, right. moving toward it. So, right. Right. Um, kind of hints toward the ferocity of the bears. Right, with the deer looking back over its shoulder at like, the bear. Like, oh, goodness. Yeah, so even the deer who are then alternatingly behind the bear don't look like they're pursuing the bear because they're looking back at the bear behind them always. So it does seem to position the bear as the one hindmost as as the hunter. Yeah, you know, I don't even see Bjorn himself choosing to artistically represent bears a whole lot in his house. Like, that doesn't even seem to me like necessary that that would happen. Yeah, he'd be more like, um, you know, like his chair here. It it right. has a bear on it, but that's the only elvish part of the decoration. Everything else scre- screams Bjorn. Right. A comfortable seat, a wide chair, and the branches that sort of look like horns. And I'm betting... Oh, just no, like branches. I bet wrong. You know, They're just attached. Tree. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, when you look at the, you know, obviously the center of the hall is dominated by these trees, which look like they could just be living trees. Like, um, like the hall could have been built around them, conceivably. Um, Possibly, but if, if so, they would have leaves. And I'm not seeing anything that looks like leaves anywhere. No, well, they would be dead because they're not getting any sun anymore. They're inside. Um, well, their their crowns would be outside, would be through the roof. If they let them continue up through the roof, I see. Mm-hmm. It look, almost looks like they do. But in any case, what I'm contrasting is those carven beams and the trees in the middle, right? Um, what we're seeing is, again, the pattern of the of Bjorn himself decorating with... Um, Decorating with plain wood, right? Um, yeah, because he doesn't seem like the guy going for all sorts of fancy stuff, but if somebody no. gave him something that was fancy and it didn't offend or otherwise seem too fancy for the venue, he'd be like, yeah, I yeah. don't need this. <clears throat> I bet the doors are elvish make. I bet those beams are carved by the elves. Um, and that wine press was certainly... A gift. And yes, I totally agree with you guys who are talking about the like enormous casks here, which I agree are almost certainly full of mead. Um, I would think no question. What with the honey? And the beehives all around the house. Yeah. And yeah. all the honeycomb. Yeah. Yeah, Bjorn almost has to be a mead drinker. Well, I mean, this this big uh, cup in front of his place, uh, the liquid in it is certainly golden, whereas one of the other cups over here has a yellow, or a milkish 
uh, stuff. But there's there's another one. It's got yeah. It might be yellow. It just might be the lights. So. Um, no, I, I agree. I think that's. Both. I think that's yellow. So no, I agree. That's probably mead that he's drinking now. Mead isn't that bright yellow. It's not like saffron yellow, but. Um, but yeah, I think they wanted the liquid to look golden so that. Um, uh, it would just it would be clear that it was the mead he was drinking. Catriona makes a really good point. Um, she says that it's interesting that there's wood planks on the inside of the house, but the outside is thatched. In the yeah, room. I think the thatch is just like the covering, you know, to, like, to waterproof the the planks. But it is interesting that there are full planks. Yeah, and they're definitely more and all um, the way around. Like there's yeah. no there's no louver. Where does the smoke go? Yeah, it might be to the side. I'm seeing a window like over here. Maybe. But I think there's a couple of them. Yeah, there is a louver, JJ. Where is it? I wasn't seeing it. And I agree. JJ is reminding us that, of course, although Bjorn Star. Oh, up here? Yeah, I see. Yeah, right. I see. Yeah, I can't. There's the hatch for smoke to escape. Probably one on the other side, too. Um, yeah, close to the. Yeah. Exit. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, anyway, as JJ was saying, though, though this is Bjorn's house, you know, when he started it, um, you know, it's been a couple generations, you know, things will have happened since then. So things like the carvings could well be post Bjorn. Um, in fact, that seems to me more likely that as they, you know, they, the Bjornings, continued friendship with the Wood Elves, um, Wood Elves came to visit and were like, let us carve you know, these beams, these plain beams. And, uh, you know, we shall carve bears in honor of Bjorn. Um, rather than somebody saying like, hey, Bjorn, you can turn into a bear. Um, let me carve you all over your own walls. Like, that would seem almost cheeky. Whereas to his son, you know, it would, you know, be honoring his, uh, his father. Right, and of course the elves would have seen his father in full fury at the yes. Battle of Five Armies. Exactly. Exactly. And I love how the shadow of the great seat falls upon the back door here. Yeah, that is pretty cool. That That's a subtle lighting thing. It is. It's really neat. Uh, and I like it um, because of the way, like, Bjorn's empty chair, you know, casts the shadow. Um which is lovely, you know, like the shadow of uh, of Bjorn's presence, even though he's no longer here. You know, the shadow of his presence is still apparent. It's pretty cool. I forgot that door actually opened. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I was just noticing that. Does it just go outside? Yeah, it just goes out on the back porch. Okay. There's a back porch. Hang on. I haven't seen the back porch. Are there more gigantic bees back here? Whoa super dark out here now. Oh, there's a task board. Oh, good. More bees. Boy, it's dark back here. And then a fence. This is the edge, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's 
the edge of the enclosure. Okay, cool. Well, it is super late. I've been so irresponsible tonight and kept everybody super late. So I'm going to let folks go. But I think with this, we're done. We're yep. done. We have seen everything that there is to see in the Vales of Anduin. So, where to next? Hmm. Well, there's a couple of interesting options and suggestions. Um, you could wander into Mirkwood mm -hmm. uh, and go visit Felagoth. Uh, you being level 120, nothing would harm you. Um, they think all the mobs should be gray to you. So that'll be cool. We could go north to the Wells of Langflood. And Shieldwall will get its its workout, which will be fine. Um, that is a 130 zone. So, well, it's 120 to 130. Uh, and then if you continue on to the Elder Slade, uh, you will want to take the version that actually scales to you. Framsburg is just calling to me. I know, isn't it? It really is. Mm-hmm. It really I is. I think we should go. Especially the other things is um, if you do the quest line up there, there's a certain place you'll want to see, and it will be an utter delight. And once you get there, it'll be safe for you to go wander around without needing five million people to protect you. Yep. Well. But it'll be so the, delightful. The gates of Gundabad. There's actually, um, the Elder Slade, there is a version of that war called War Three Peaks that you can go to that scales to your level, but it is still pretty rough. Yeah. And not very peaceful. The Grey Mountains. So, like, I'd be tempted to kind of go out into Mirkwood first and then... Yeah, there's, uh, you can complete the, uh, the path of the company, the original path of the company D, yeah. ironically, that came before the one here in the Vales. Right, and then head out to the Iron Hills and then loop back around to mm -hmm. the Grey Mountains and Gundabad and the Wells of Langflood. But then, like, since I'm already here and I've already been searching all around from the borders of Lothlorien all the way up here, like just to finish off the wells of Langflood and Gundabad while I'm here and then head over that way. Super tempting. But of course, I also have to keep in mind, before too long, we're going to actually go to Eregion. Oh, yes. So I think maybe we should go north because there's less to see in the north than there is. I mean, I, it's easy for me to tell that if I go into this zone... The Northern Mirkwood Zone? This is mm -hmm. going to be a long time. Mm, yes and no. Because in Northern Mirkwood... Okay. Yes. There's Never a lot to yes. see. Because, yeah, you have Felgoth, Karastilian, Logland, Eskroth of Old, mm -hmm. uh, Lake Town. And, of course, we took you on a tour of Dale once and then Ravenhill. Yeah, Therefore. yeah. But yeah, no, all I'm gonna places. wanna I'm gonna wanna put it all together. So yeah. Um Yep. Yep. That would take a while, and then of course being here, I'm gonna wanna go into Erebor, and then I'm gonna wanna go to the Iron Hills, which I've never been to ever, actually. 
and if yeah. you've ever been to the American Southwest in the canyons, you've been to the Iron Hills. Right. Whereas, but it's still beautiful. If Fromsburg I go north, Fromsburg is calling to me, and uh, Fromsburg and is calling to that. me. Yeah. And if I can, yeah, if I can head up here, this I could maybe do in the time it's going to take us to get to Oregon. Yeah. Um, the map of the Wells of Langford, to me, the interesting things to look at is Limloch is a Bjorning village. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fromsburg. Yeah. Um, Enough said. The White Mare. Just, you know, a one-shot shot visit the White Mare. And then you see where that eagle and the horse are on the western side of the map. You have to go there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a given. That's a given. No, no, we'll go everywhere we can go. But, yeah, there's just... Even both of these together, there just doesn't look like there's all that much. Yeah, it's because it's a quest pack. It wasn't an expansion. Right, exactly. So, I stand a better chance. Okay, all right. We'll do it. We'll continue. We'll We'll keep you alive. We'll continue north. So, what we'll do is we'll start again from Holtvist and we'll just keep going north past the Carrick and, and up. And then we, we can get to Limlock hopefully next time and we can uh we can uh hopefully milestone there. Yeah, there's a milestone here, but are we really closer? I guess we're closer. Yeah, okay. Let's just milestone here, I guess. milestone out front, which is I recall is where the milestone was. Yeah, it's out front. Okay. Alright. Let's, uh... Bjorn's house. Yeah, uh, nothing like using Bjorn's house as a shortcut. Sorry, just passing through. Nice. Okay. Alright, so here we are. I'm gonna... All right, replace vague bar of the invisible Bjornings with axes. All right. Okay, so we'll come here next time. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Thank you for your patience. Super late night tonight. Sorry about that. Um, But uh, we'll see you guys next week. All right. Good night, everybody. Bye now.